going on everybody welcome to another episode of adventures in devops i'm today's host will button joining me in the studio my co-host jonathan hall hey everyone and we have a special guest today eris bergner welcome eris hey will jonathan great to be here we're excited to have you and today we're going to be talking about lessons learned from serverless so before we jump into that do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background yeah, of course. So my name is Ernst Breckner. Today I'm CEO and co-founder of uh, Lumigo. I'm a developer, or maybe today a developer by heart, but I spent the better years of my career as developer in different companies, working from you know the deep, um, dark kernel drivers of uh, Linux all the way to, <laughs> to higher application, many times in the security space. And yeah, I'm just a big fan of technology. Right on. I think that goes hand in hand with people who have been doing this for decades. You know, like you kind of have to, this has to be your job and your hobby if you're going to persist at this for decades, I think. Yeah. Otherwise you might, you know, that's, I think we, you know, we live in an era where at least at the, you know, at our industry, the high tech industry, many, many of us fortunately have the ability to combine your hobby and your, and, and, and your work. And honestly, if that's not the case, I think we are fortunate enough today to you know, to have the ability to choose and to say, okay, so I might just go and do something else. And I think that's, that's why you're seeing a lot of people that really love what they're doing, really love coding, really love architecture, building engineers, because I think this is the people that remains in this path. Yeah, and I think that adds a lot to how quickly we're seeing technology change just because people are excited and passionate and actually enjoying what they're doing they're doing. I can't imagine that I would be this excited about work if I were, say, a roofer here in the desert and carrying shingles up onto a roof every afternoon. Yeah. No disrespect to, to roofers, right? <laughs> right, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but yeah, for sure. But I must say, I always, because I'm 100% software guy, I always admired people that are actually doing what I call actual work. And actually building <laughs> something physical, doing something physical, I always say like, you know, that's, that's so much more than what I can do. Yeah, for sure. Like if you, those people who can build something and they can point to it and you can walk up and you can touch it or kick it or whatever. Absolutely. And then, and then you can tell your grandmother about that and she understands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So y'all have been doing serverless quite a bit over at Lumigo, right? Yeah. Uh, and by quite a bit, 100%. Is that accurate? That is accurate. We are, I, I think today, it's, yeah, it's, I think it, we degraded to 99%. Just <laughs> oh, no. Just I'm not anymore. Snowball alone, you're pure, like I said, but... Uh, but yeah, we're very much focused on, you know, eating our own dog food, using serverless, you know, in a very, I think, pushing the boundaries um, of serverless for already five years now. 
right on. That's that's enough time to develop some pretty strong opinions about it. So I think one of the things that stands out to me about serverless is if you're going to build and run a serverless application, you kind of have to start with that as your goal in the beginning. It's it's pretty challenging to take an existing application that's built to run as a service or as a container and move that to a serverless type application. Would you agree? It's a very interesting like point. I think that it, it depends. I think maybe the basic is that service is not just a service. It's not just a specific technology. It's it's a mindset. And Werner Vogel, a CTO of uh, of uh, Amazon, on his latest uh, keynote in reInvent, talked about event-driven architectures (EDA), uh, which a lot of many people say, okay, it's a rebranding of serverless or something like that. But the point is that you need to think in events in decoupling different services in a very, very strong architectural manner in order to go to go serverless. And so I think migrating, you know, from a container to a managed service is shouldn't be like dramatic. It's more about how you actually build this in the right constructs, the right architecture, the right mindset. And this, I think it's not trivial because it's a new, it's like learning a, you know, a new language. It's not just doing the same. It's not just like, okay, let's do the same over there. It's like, let's think about it from a different angle. And it's not trivial and it requires time. It requires expertise. You need to get some consultation many times. And I think this is why it's, it's perceived as significant change or migration when doing so. And, and, and the last thing is that many times it's done in baby steps. So if your architecture, you know, container environment in the right way, you can take a specific microservice and just migrate this and that you're done for this month and then maybe step like this. Right on. Jonathan, what do you think about serverless? It's something that's intrigued me and I've never really played with it very much. So most of my knowledge is theoretical. So it's probably hard for me to ask very intelligent questions. <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you, there's one thing in this article that, that really popped out at me and I think is a relevant discussion, probably for other topics too. That is the idea that logs are overrated. Do you want to talk about that a little bit maybe? Uh, wh- why are they overrated? And, and yeah, <laughs> what do you replace yeah, them with? It's a, it's a bold statement, right? <laughs> it is. Yeah. So I think maybe just before diving into that, maybe it would help to actually define what serverless is just because I think many people have different definitions and there's a big fight over there. Ideologically, like even within, you know, the cloud providers, is that defined serverless or not? So by no means, this is a complete definition or this is just my, you know, single person definition. But for me, you know, the serverless architecture concept mindset about consuming more and more managed services with APIs, ways that can scale, opposed to just building, you know, renting a server and building your software on top of that. So instead of just, you know, getting few servers and, and, and building your software over there, you use a lot of the managed, the software as a service. So be it database as a service like Snowflake or DynamoDB that you can just consume via API. You don't need to set, you know, you don't need to build it. Manage queue like AWS SNS, SQS, EventBridge, you know, S3, manage, manage a file system. And the point is that through this managed services, like, like Lego pieces, you can today build a, almost every application just by taking connecting those Lego pieces together in a very fast way to build, not to build, but to, let's call it, glue together those different uh, services. So when I talk about serverless, 
It's functional service like AWS Lambdas, but it's all the variety of managed services within the cloud provider or external to the cloud provider. And that's as a service concept that, that I refer to. So maybe that, that would be the, just like the, the first definition before we go into the, the logging. But I'm just interested. So you, would, to, you include things like database as a service as part of the definition of serverless? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Exactly. You got that uh, just right. I, I even define containers as a service in the broad serverless spectrum. It's for me. It's again. It's something that you consume, you don't manage, and it can scale. This is without getting philosophical. This is what helped me as a developer to just connect, 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 glue this, run this, and I'm done. And now, when you think about that, to, to your question about logs, when you have this this microservice environment with a lot of managed services that you don't control, you don't own, you don't, you cannot code over there, you cannot change the API, it's a closed garden. You cannot do anything on there. You don't issue logs, right? Because it's not your system, you don't know. But all of a sudden, this, you know, sometimes there are dozens or, or more microservices in those managed services environment. Getting a log, all of a sudden, feels very limited because a log on the one hand side, is limited to that specific service and that specific time and specific event. So it's not enough to tell me the entire story, what happened across you know, dozens of services in that request. I have to correlate a lot of logs in order to figure this out. It's called distributed tracing. On the other hand, you know, everything is logged today. You know, people talk about logs fatigue because so many things are logged and it's very, very hard to find the right log of what you need in order for you to understand what happened. So that's that's kind of like why, you know, logs are overrated nowadays. They're so, you know, maybe it was it makes sense like 10, 15 years ago. And the alternatives are what distributed tracing companies, observability companies offer today with tracing, with the ability to focus you on a single request, end-to-end request, so a developer can debug without looking at logs, just looking at the actual data that goes from one service to another and getting to a root cause. Gotcha. So the the logs themselves are typically independent events. And then when you're jumping from from serverless component to serverless component, whether that's a, a Lambda function or a container or database service, it's really challenging to correlate those string of events together as one sequence of events. And that's where observability steps in to provide you that higher level picture of here's your data and here's what happened to it at each step of the way. Is that like a good summary? That's actually a really good summary. I would say, yeah. And, and think about, you know, system at scale. You know, so even two components. This component, Lambda container, let's say has, you know, one million requests going in every minute. And the other component also have one million events going like as a next step. And now all of a sudden you have two million events and logs, you know, maybe 10x of those logs. But the real <laughs> problem is, that, like you said, how, how do I connect just the two logs that I want to dive into? And this is where it's challenging. So, so yeah, absolutely. It's about connecting, correlating the entire system with logs. Just regex it, right? <laughs> Grab. Right. <laughs> yes. This is this is actually what 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 people are doing, right? Because so yeah. so, so they, they have some sort of a unique identifier, and they search for that unique identifier across the millions of logs. So that's the other layer of this. And you know how I know that identifier is unique is because I just SSH to the server and put the line in there that says one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> that's the fun thing. You cannot SSH to a serverless environment, right? Because uh, you have no target to SSH to, to DynamoDB or others. There's another, another interesting point. Yeah, for sure. And when you first start down this path, I think for me anyway, that was, that was very eye-opening because I didn't realize how dependent I was on SSH or having direct access to the machine, not only for like configuration stuff, but just troubleshooting. And so when I started using serverless, I hit all these obstacles because my tool set that I had been using for decades no longer worked. Exactly, exactly. And this is an example of a great example of the mindset that I'm talking about and the shift. So I used to SSH to servers as well when I was developing. This is this is this is no longer an option today in a in an environment that is you know services are spanning up and down all all the time and changing and you don't have the history. So where would you SSH to? And this is why you need to have different ways to look at those environments to to adapt the tools to those environments. So what for whenever you're trying to approach the observability aspect of it, what are some of the key questions you should be asking to build out a good observability platform? Well, I think, you know, the, the basics, we need to remember the basics doesn't change, right? So what do we want? We want to build a solution to a problem that we have, you know, a business, a business uh, problem. And this solution needs to meet some criteria of functionality and, and SLAs and, and whatever the boundaries are. So that's one. And then the second, and this is where observability comes, we, we need to have the ability to make sure that we're meeting the SLAs. So if something goes wrong, we need to know about this. We need to, in X minutes after the problem, we need to have backups, of course, like high availability. And we need to be able to get to the root cause in Y minutes or one Y hours or whatever it is SLA is. This, this is not new, right? This is just, you know, the, the idea of we need to run production, business critical application doesn't change. What does change when we talk about modern cloud observability is how can we get there? And this is where Jonathan talked about the logs. It's not It's not about the logs. The logs can be great, they can help, but just having a bunch of logs doesn't help in those environments. Just no longer the metrics that we used to have. So when I was working with servers, I always kept an eye on, on CPU, right? If it's more than 50% CPU, we need another server. <laughs> Same goes to memory, I.O. But it's different. Like, who cares about the memory or I.O. of DynamoDB or S3? Or Stripe, or there are different things that we need to be looking at the at on those environments. So things like, no, I'm I'm using Twilio. I want to make sure I'm monitoring that service in terms of uh, latency hiccups. That's becoming much more important. No, I don't care about their CPU. If I'm using Lambdas, I want to make sure that I understand cold starts, and is that is that a, a big a big uh, thing for me? And um, if I'm using DynamoDB, I want to get alerts on you know capacity issues in terms of read writes. Uh, my definition, I can adapt those, but I need to know. So that's a bit of the visibility that really changes. Again, the same target. We want to make sure the system is up and running, but we need to watch other things. If we watch the old things, we will just you know get get hit on the you know from a different side. That's one thing about looking at different things, and the other is actually debugging. And this goes to our discussion about tracing, distributed tracing, getting the one, two, three, four, five of Jonathan into the server, but having this in a way that I can, as a developer, understand post-mortem what happened from beginning to end across the services. 
Right on. So let's jump on to a different topic here about multiple AWS accounts. This is something that, uh, that you reference in the, the article that we've got here as well. And I like this topic because it's something I'm currently dealing with. And so just for, just to, to set the, the foundation here, the idea between in AWS of using multiple accounts is you have a separate AWS account for development and for production for each application or each team that you're supporting. And that gives you the ability to give a little more permissive access to your development team and your development environment. And then no one gets access to production. And then on the, whenever the day comes that you actually do get hacked, you kind of minimize the blast radius because that AWS account has only limited resources in it. What's your experience with like how granular to go with that? Like, is there a, is there such a thing as having too many AWS accounts? I was like, surely not. Surely you can never have too many AWS accounts. Yeah, so I, I think on the article, and by the way, the article, I, I didn't mention, this article is written by uh, Jan Kuy. He also named, or Jan Kray, the burning monk. And he's a, you know, a, a serverless, one of the biggest serverless experts in the world today. He happened to be our developer advocate, but, um, <laughs> right. but, but he's been, he's been, he's been this ex- expert much before he started working with us. I just want to say that I want to give him the credit because this is, you know, it's not my work, it's his work and his analysis. And second is that, uh, he has a lot of great stuff. If you are going to get into serverless and understand better, you know, I would say number one is to read his his uh, his blogs. So about your uh, question, I think in a serverless environment, the, having the right separation, no, like having multiple AWS accounts serves multiple things. One is, one is, as you mentioned, security is great. Like zoning and security, you know, this is a bread and butter. I spent, you know, 14 years at a company called Checkpoint before Lumigo. So, you know, Creating the right zones is critical for uh, segmentation and separation. And this really grows now also like to east-west uh, security and zoning within the data center. So this is in micro, micro segmentation and all the other things that are really ramping up in the last you know five, six years. This is kind of like best practices for security and that to minimize the exposure. Right. So absolutely, you know, this is one angle of this. But I think the same concept could apply not just for security, but also for different implication of uh, one environment over another. So if I'm, let's suppose, let's look at having one AWS account, for example, for your entire company. Let's suppose I have, you know, 40 developers, one staging environment and one production. If I run everything in the same AWS account, beyond the security issues, I, I run into risk of actually consuming, enriching some of the limits that exist in AWS environment. Because you need to remember, this is not your you know, physical server room that you know everything that's going on and you're just limited by CPU and memory. You're limited by a bunch of things. Most of them you don't know about because they're not documented, but you will fill them once you reach that limit. So, so just to give an example, this is, is documented, but the number of lambdas invocation you can have at a single second is limited. Mm-hmm. So if a developer now run an experiment, a stress test on, on the environment, all of a sudden your production will suffer and you will start having issues in, you know, throttling their lambdas in production. Oh, right. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, those are, at the end of the day, although this is separate services, there are shared resources 
in an account. And uh, you need to be mindful of that. This is one perspective, the resource utilization. And the other one is risk. You know, if a developer deletes his account, that's okay. We can build a new account. If he deletes the production account, that's a bit more of a problem. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> So this is why at Lumigo, and, and this is, I think, today almost the best practice if you're really practicing serverless, at least serverless in, in AWS, is to have a separation of accounts, have an account, best would be account per developer, account for, for testing, account for staging, account for production, at least one, and then have a very clear uh, separation and role segregation. And the only downside of that that I at least know of is managing all of those accounts. And that's a challenge. But Will mm-hmm. likes that part, so, so there's no problem. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, absolutely. That's, that's, that's what uh, everyone complains about with AWS accounts, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I have so many accounts. This is where you know you, you really need to have like good people that are managing your AWS environment, knows what they're doing, using the right tools. So AWS has some tools to manage you know, organizations and other accounts. But you need to be mindful of that because that becomes a challenge as you grow over, let's say, I think 80, 90 accounts in your environment. For sure. Yeah. And for anyone who's not familiar with doing multiple AWS accounts, there's an AWS tool called Control Tower that lets you, so you have one main AWS account and then you can create other AWS accounts that roll up into that. So then you can have a single account where you, all your billing rolls up into that, but then also your user management. So you can have users in groups and then assign different permissions to those individual AWS accounts based on the the needs of those users. So it's not literally you going to the AWS console and creating, you know, 75 individual AWS accounts. Yeah, exactly. Although I'm sure it probably started that way. (laughs) I did five. After that, that was... (laughs) I'm curious to talk about a tangential topic, and that's just the name serverless. I mean, I think we all know it's a marketing buzzword. It doesn't actually mean there aren't servers involved. What, what name would you choose if you were going to rename this today? What would you call this this thing? Oh, that's that's a very interesting question. Or maybe you like the name and you wouldn't change it. I don't know. No, you know, I don't really like the name because because you're absolutely right. One, there are servers behind the scenes, always. Number two, it's kind of like, you know, it's very hard to define something by saying this is not X. No, no sequel all over again, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like introducing me. I, I'm not Will, right? It's not. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm Eric, right? So, so I think you know. Although you have to say, you have to, to admit it worked for wireless. You know, when radio <laughs> and wireless internet came out, those worked right. pretty well. <laughs> right. Anyway, not, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just. I'm taking us off track. No, no, no. That, that's actually interesting. And but I think you know, on, on naming of servers, I think, and I'm not a marketing genius, but I would actually. This is why I'm, I'm calling this sometimes, you know, managed services, because I think it's not the fact that you are not running your servers. It's the fact that you are not managing or maintaining your servers. It's somebody else's work. So I don't know if that's a, you know, I, I don't know if that's a name I would choose as a, a marketeer of AWS, but the concept of having a managed service fits more than no server kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know what name I would choose either. I mean, you use a broader definition than I think a lot of people do. Because you know, I, I usually think of serverless as it's kind of like functions as a service. But if you want to include database as a service, then you know, then functions as a service is, is far too narrow. I do like the function as a service better than serverless, but even that isn't quite perfectly right. It's like I'm not paying 
for functions. I'm paying for execution threads or something. So maybe it's threads as a service or, or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, or execution as a service or, uh, you know, yeah. I don't think we're going to change the name as an industry anytime soon. So this is mostly just a, a beer time sort of conversation. It's not really going to so, be useful. You know, I, I think that actually, um, you know, one is AWS is really trying to change just what you just said. Like about the fact that uh, many people identify serverless with functional service. Serverless is lambda, right. and AWS is really trying to fight that and spending a lot of a lot of uh, of content and, and thought on uh, trying to educate and saying, hey, this is more, and you know, we we can define more things. You know, uh, DynamoDB is serverless, and uh, Aurora is serverless, and, and others, and EventBridge and SNS and SQL. So this is one thing that AWS is trying to do. I, I think most people still think and, and I don't know, still know that serverless is, is lambdas. And I think part of that is why they started talking about event-driven architectures. Because instead of you know trying to change people thinking about a specific term, let's define a new term, EDA. And now EDA is event-driven. And yeah, DynamoDB streams is event-driven. And Kinesis streams is event-driven. And SNS and SQL is event-driven. Serverless or not, that's a different discussion. But... So yeah, so event-driven, let's talk about event-driven, and now I will do the troubleshooting and the debugging and distributed tracing for event-driven architectures. So um, I think maybe that's an interesting direction that AWS is taking. Cool. So you mentioned in here, one of the things that I've seen very, very few people implement, although I'm a huge fan of this approach, when it comes to loading secrets, you know, for decades we've loaded secrets as environment variables, but with things like Parameter Store and AWS or Secrets Manager, they all have APIs. And so this is one of the few approaches I've seen. I've used it myself a couple of times, and I really, really like the approach. So whenever your application cold starts, it actually goes out to the secret vault or store or whatever you have and pulls in the secrets that it's authorized to read and loads those within the application runtime itself. So those are never exposed as environment variables. What shifted y'all to using this approach versus oh. the uh, age-old approach? Yeah, so, you know, I think this is, comes with uh, the fact that this is also a mindset thing. Because you need to remember that, you know, an environment variable in AWS is open and, you know, anyone that can log and see the console and the Lambda can, or from the command line as well, can see the environment variable. So once you understand that, you know, it's, it's very clear that you cannot use that for secrets. And then the right, the right thing is to find, you know, other mechanism. And this is uh, where, um, you know, having a, you know, a parameter store or a shared place for secrets, I think really, or Vault, really makes sense even, you know, even regardless of AWS, it is just like a best practice. And then, and, and I think in, I think the only change is in service environment, especially Lambda environment, it's a must. It's no longer just like a good, good design. It's uh, it's something you have to do in order to keep your secrets. For sure. One other thing that I noticed that you put in there that I hadn't seen done before is when you load those secrets in, you also have an expiry timer on there. So periodically you'll go refresh those credentials from within the app, which makes it easier to rotate those credentials, I'm assuming. Exactly. So if you have enough grace period, assuming you have, then you can, without any need to automatically invalidate manually, you just, you know, you just plug a new secret and, you know, you know that everything, you know, in, in X minutes will will be updated with a new one. And that's, uh, that's opposed to just like, okay, now we need to take the entire system down, 
in order to to rotate those. Yeah, for sure. Do you have like a default lifetime for your credentials, like maximum of 30 days or 30 hours or something like gravitate towards? I must say that this is no, this is no longer something that I, I know. So I, I don't want to just say I can tell you what I think reasonable, but I don't want to just say something that my CTO will come up to and say, "What was that rubbish you talked with?" Uh, with <laughs> it's not five minutes; it's thirty days. <laughs> but, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. So when it comes to applying least privilege to different resources. That's something I've always struggled with. I think that's one of the big deficiencies of AWS is, okay, I want to apply the least amount of privileges to to read records from a DynamoDB, for example. I think there's a definite need for more documentation from AWS to say, hey, here are the IAM permissions that you need, and here's what that permission will give you. Because so many of them, I've looked at them, and it's like permission X, and you look at the you look up the definition for it, and the definition of it is it grants you the ability to do X. I'm like, well, I kind of figured that part out on my own. I'm kind of wondering what the heck X is. <laughs> well, and then, I mean, if you're working with somebody uh, who's managing these permissions and trying to be conscientious about it, you end up with a problem like I had at my, my last contract. Where every every day or week you're asking for more permissions because some weird thing in the UI says you don't have permissions for this thing. And you may not even know if that's the thing you want to be doing. Right. <laughs> like I'm, I'm trying to debug why this why this service won't restart. And I'm looking through this and oh, here's an error. I I need this. So would you give me that? And oh yeah, okay. So then you know, twenty minutes later I have the permission. And, oh, that just gives me a link to the Docker image. I don't need that. I need oh. you know, whatever. So, you know, it's just it's <laughs> As both a user and as an administrator, it can be very frustrating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. That's you also don't in those cases don't know really to explain why you need that, right? Because yeah, the the computer told me so, kind of thing. So right. Yeah, yeah. Here's the permission denied message. Clearly, I need this permission. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so I think I think that uh, this is always a challenge, and it works in 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 the principle, right? You know, least privilege privilege principle really makes sense when you work and plan your system, you know, on on the whiteboard. But I think you probably know better than I do that uh, this really gets messy in in real life. And uh, getting you know all of the permission, and there are such a granular permission today. So if you go to granular, you become like the you know very the annoying guy that keep opening tickets for everything. <laughs> right. And if you go too wide, then you're not secured because everything is wide open. So I think it's really it really is a challenge. And you know this is where theory meets practice, and it's hard. There are some very interesting startups today that are trying to address you know permission you know on demand automated permission without the need to you know to open a request and approve it one by one by a manual um, human being but this is still i think an un- unresolved territory unresolved problem yeah so meanwhile we're back to trial and error of uh adding permissions one at a time waiting for it to blow up go yeah. back or you could just yeah. hire an aws consultant who knows all about this because they've already done the trial and error <laughs> <laughs> if we just knew someone yeah right <laughs> So the big one of the big challenges with specifically with like lambda functions 
is the concept of cold starts. What advice have you learned over the past few years in, in uh, making that approachable? Yeah, so so cold starts, just to, to share for those who don't know what cold start is, this is what happens when a Lambda wasn't invoked for for some time. So when Lambda, when Lambda is not invoked for some time, or even when it is invoked every once in a while, AWS decided to refresh the container underneath and basically kill the container and spawn a new one. And that means that uh, it will take time for the next invocation to load everything to memory and get through all the you know constructors and all the basic things that uh, initialization. So this will manifest like some single invocation is going to hiccup. If you're usually doing like 100 milliseconds, all of a sudden you for one invocation, that's your average, you will have a hiccup, let's say, every hour of one second. And it can be three seconds, it can be half a second, it can be more common or not. And this is especially problematic for systems that have spikes because if you are just like on a steady rate and then all of a sudden I need on this specific second 1,000 more execution in parallel, AWS needs to spawn 1,000 more containers to serve those lambdas that uh, are now happening. And they weren't like hot containers. They were, you know, nothing over there. And then and then if you're spiking like this and then you're going to sleep and after an hour you spike again, this can be a real, real problem because it creates big latencies every hour. So that's kind of like, you know, the problem of cold start. And AWS is constantly working to improve and improve and improve that, but it's still a thing. And I think what, what I learned is that the first and foremost is, it goes back to visibility, is to understand, do you have a latency problem? And if you have a latency problem, is that because of cold structs? And, and those are questions that are not trivial to answer in a multi, like in a distributed environment. But there are ways, and we have some articles, Jan wrote some articles about how can you, uh, you know, build metrics to identify latencies and cold starts. And we bake those in as you know, as an example into Lumigo platform because this is a recurring challenge for the customers. So instead of you building all of this and analyzing this, it's kind of one of the things that you get out of the box. And th- this has been very, very useful. The, the reason I'm showing this is because we're seeing people that are actually taking a lot of action based on identifying cold start identifying latencies. So my experience would be, number one, make sure that you have this in place, either with a tool or in CloudWatch, you can build that metric in CloudWatch through the log. And the second is, once you have it in place, if this is a real problem for you, there are many ways that you can improve the situation of cold starts. You know, just to give two examples, but again, there are a lot of blogs and articles around that. One would be to reduce the amount of initialization that happen uh, when the container spawns up. So save it to a later stage and then and then and then do it uh, incrementally, not uh, at once. And second would be uh, keeping the container warm. So if you know that you're going to have a spike, if you can, you know, one minute before that start raising the lambdas, that would be great because then you won't hit that on the critical time you have. Right on. One thing I wanted to ask that that I've noticed here. So whenever we're we're building these things out and using a lot of managed services, like AWS has gone out of their way to make it really easy to use the console to point and click your way to success. But just on the whole, I really try to avoid that and use infrastructure tools, whether that's Terraform or CloudFormation or something like that. 
just so that there's like formal written documentation of how the infrastructure is built and the changes that happen to it over time. And I've been wondering lately, am I just like fighting an uphill battle on this or should I just give in and, and embrace the console? So what's, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. No, winners don't use drugs. Developers don't use console. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, but, but honestly, I, I love the console. I must, I don't, maybe that's over exaggerating. Nobody loves the console, but I use the console. But, you know, when I see the developer team, I don't think many of those are using the console today because, because you know, you want to get things uh, via code, you want to get things via API, you want to get scripts running. You don't want to do things manual as yourself. I, I'm not developing today, so it's easier for me. I just want to check something, so I go in and just view. I think for viewing, mm-hmm. that's great, but if you're really developing, you'll find, number one, the console is much more limited, as, ever, as always, like... The, uh, the support for an API is there, but it always takes time until it gets to the UI, if it gets to the UI. And then you really don't want to do changes that you cannot repeat, that you cannot um, run via script. And so this is um, so this is another thing I, why I think console is more popular when you talk about you know building significant systems or serious systems. Uh, not sorry, sorry, the command line. Or APIs, and um, and that would also be my recommendation. Like, if sometimes it's easier, you just want to do a quick something like you know playground or hobby, or just want to view something that's easy. But I would recommend on the day to day to to use uh, you know uh, APIs, CM command line or scripts. It saves a lot of time, and it also saves a lot of mistakes that are just done since somebody went into the console and clicked on this, and it was. Unsupervised. Yeah, for sure. Because I'm sure I'm sure you can get the. I'm sure somewhere in AWS there's a log that would tell you that would happen, but I'm not sure where you would go to find it and how long it would take you to get to that point. Yeah, you can go to CloudTrail and to see some of the audits. It's not it's not everything, but I think it's it's decent. But at the same time, this is good for really like I think mostly for auditing and trying to understand and. But on your day to day, when you go to an environment, you want to be able to see, you know, in your logs and in your system what happened and not through just like, you know, an auditing tool of AWS. I think it's much harder. Yeah. Versus a, a pull request, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. What's your tool of choice for, for doing the infrastructure management? So we, we actually have a, we're having like a homegrown tools over here. So this best fits our needs today. And I, I think this really develops in the last four or five years. I'm, I'm not sure, and I'm not really monitoring that space, but might just be that today the right thing is to take like one of the cool startups that monitor, you know, managing the infrastructure instead of building your own thing. But uh, you know, for us, it's uh, it's it's already working and it's pretty well. So uh, we're good with that. Yeah, for sure. It's it's hard to like once you have all the bugs ironed out, it's hard to justify switching over to something else. Right. Jonathan, what about you? What's your favorite tool? You know, I don't really have one. I've used a few different ones, but none of them extensively enough to say that I have a favorite. Gotcha. What do we do, Will? Do you have anything that is your favorite? I'm a big fan of Terraform what because they Pulumi? weren't you talking about that for a while, or, or does well, that not? Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna follow up with Pulumi. Terraform. Right. Terraform does a great job of keeping up with the pace of AWS and GCP. And so anything that you want to do, Terraform generally has support for it. And then Pulumi is right up there with them. I think the difference between the two is 
Terraform is very declarative, which I think lends itself to people who have a sysadmin background, whereas Pulumi is very programmatic. So if you have developers that you're trying to get interested in managing their infrastructure as code with Pulumi, you pull in SDKs and libraries, and you know it's it's a familiar interface for them because they're actually writing code to build their infrastructure. And so you, I think you get that buy-in and adoption from a a developer team a lot quicker with Pulumi instead of the declarative style approach of Terraform. But both of those I'm a pretty big fan of. Yeah, and in, in serverless environments, by the way, there is also like a framework called Servos Framework, which is doing pretty decent work when it comes to you know managing the assets in the service environments. Yeah, they keep they keep popping up and it looks like they're making tons of progress as well to to make it easy to, to build, deploy, and manage serverless applications. Yeah. And their their documentation, they've got a lot of great documentation too. So I think that's a, a really strong approach there is if you build great documentation and tutorials to educate your potential users, then they're just going to be, they're going to be big fans for however long they can be. Right on. Uh, anything else we should talk about? No, I think, I think we covered the entire article. Jonathan, okay, anything else? No. How's the sleep schedule with the new baby? <laughs> great. And I spent four hours in bed this afternoon. <laughs> my son and my two-year-old and I have been sick, so. Um, oh, no. Yeah, I don't know if you've, been noticing but my eyes twitching a little bit still can't <laughs> very well so. it's not the drugs i swear <laughs> well it was a podcast so i wasn't going to say anything to draw attention to <laughs> you didn't say anything about developers can't do drugs right <laughs> right yeah yeah he said winners yeah, don't yeah. do drugs Funny winners. Funny winners. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Well, let's move on to some picks. Jonathan, got any picks for us this week? I have a couple. All right. Uh, the first is a book. I can't remember if I picked it or not because I finished it a few weeks ago, but it's it's good enough to pick twice if I did already. I mean, it's not a, really a new book, but I, I read it for the first time and, and it came out. So I wrote at the end of, end of the year, I wrote my top five reads for the year uh, as I did last year also. And this was on that list. So it's a uh, good strategy, bad strategy by Richard uh, Rumelt. I don't know if I pronounced the last name correctly. Sorry, Richard, if I did. But yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. I felt it was going to be kind of dry for some reason. I don't know why I thought that. I mean, people recommended it. This is a great book. I thought, yeah, strategy. It sounds, it sounds academic and blah, blah, blah. But actually, it's a really, really good book. Entertaining book. And it, it really kind of helps you understand why you hear so much corporate BS claiming to be strategy that isn't strategy at all. So, it, you know, if you're tired of, if, if the reason you don't want to read a book about strategy is because you're tired of hearing your boss talk about strategy and you know that he's full of crap, you will love this book. <laughs> <laughs> it will help you. It will first explain why that's bad strategy and actually why it's not even strategy at all. And then helps help you learn to identify, uh, you know, so you can actually you know, call BS when, when that sort of stuff comes up. And then at the end, he, he helps you come up with some ways to, to identify good strategies. So if you are in a, in a position or, or want to be in your career where you're helping to set strategy, whether it's technical strategy or business strategy or whatever, uh, this book can really help you with that. So anybody who wants to go into management, CTO work, anything like that at all, this is, I would, I would call it a must read for anyone trying to go into that sort of career line. And it's a good read for anybody at all, regardless. So and what the title is again? Yeah. Good strategy slash bad strategy. The difference and why it matters by Richard oh Mills. So that's, that's my first pick. My second pick is going to be categorized under shameless self plugs. 
And that is my brand new podcast that's coming out. Ooh. As we record this, it's coming out next week. It was going to come out today, but since I was napping all day, it didn't happen. So for <laughs> the first episode to come out next week, by the time you hear this, this episode published, it will have already been out for a week or two. But the podcast is called Cup O Go, as in like a cup of Joe, but it's go instead of Joe. Yeah. Uh, so clever. Yeah. Clever, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> And now you have to watch it or listen to it just because it's such a clever name. The premise, uh, my, my promise to the listener is to help you keep in touch with the Go community in 15 minutes a week. So it's going to be Go News mostly. The first 15 minutes of each episode, roughly, will be news-related topics for the last week in the Go community. What versions were released, what libraries had security patches, etc. That sort of stuff. You know, think Things that are interesting. What decisions are they going to make this week that you, you might care about if you're interested in that? So uh, if you don't want to spend all the time it takes to read all the Go announcements and blah, 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 follow all the Go Slack channels, you just want the highlights in 15 minutes a week. This is the, the podcast for you. And then after that, we'll, we'll do some longer form, more casual discussion in chat. So uh, if you want the quick sound bites, listen to the first 15 minutes and then you can, you can go off and do your own thing. If you want to hear the whole thing, probably be a 30, 45 minute episode. So right check on. it out. Cup a go. Dot dev if you want to go subscribe it's already on uh, apple podcasts and everywhere else and, and by the time you're listening to this you should have two or three episodes there you can go listen to nice good luck with that thank you all right Ares, what do you got for picks yeah so i would recommend i think that the thing that comes to mind and it can be in any any category right any category at all anything yeah. goes yeah so I happened to watch a very old movie, relatively old movie, uh, recently that uh, I consider one of the best movies ever uh, created. You guys want to guess? Is it the Christmas movie with William Shatner? <laughs> <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> Will, what is your guess? Oh, I'm going to go with uh, the other top Christmas movie, Die Hard. Oh, nice. Nice. <laughs> It's not that, but I like I like it. It's not as you know, it's more it's older. So I actually uh, saw Godfather. Oh yeah, which which I really like. You know, it's so everything is you know so slower and than what uh, people do today, but much more profound and such. <laughs> oh yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Jonathan just showed us like the the book Godfather on the shelf on the shelf. Yeah. So yeah, so if you know if anyone didn't watch it yet, I highly recommend it. Uh, you know, Marlon Brendan, you know, you know, doing an amazing acting over there, and I really like the subtleties. Like you really feel that uh, they spend the time on every minute in that long movie, and they really think about the nuances uh, to build the right uh, story, the right feeling. So I really love that movie. Excellent, good film. I like it. Yeah, good call. All right, for my pick this week, I am picking uh, for Christmas. I got a Theragun massager that's just been super cool. And this one's actually pretty small. I'm holding it up to the camera here, but since this is a podcast, you don't know that. <laughs> but it's just a little bit larger than my hand, but the battery life's on it really good. And it's great for just like digging into those sore muscles. And especially if you've been sitting at the keyboard all day and your back's all tight and sore, it just works everything out. And yeah, I've seen them around for years. My wife bought one for Christmas and now I'm like, wow. So that's why everyone likes those. So that's my pick. And uh, Ares, if people want to interact with you, hang out with you on social media, anything like that, what's the, where's the best place for them to head? 
Yeah, I, I think Twitter, direct message on Twitter uh, or LinkedIn or even through, you know, if they're, if they're you know, using the Lumigo is like free and easy to sign up. So we also have like a chat through the platform that I many times uh, answer on my own so uh, or try to. Uh, so actually in every channel that uh, we have is uh, from Twitter to LinkedIn to uh, intercommunal platform. All right, cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a great conversation and look forward to seeing you on here again. Thank you very much for having me. It was a great fun. Right on. Cool. See you, everyone. Thank you. Also, back. Bye-bye.